It's an old song, and we're going to sing it again. The mystery, the myth of, of Prometheus is an old song that we've sung again and again across the ages. It's like any good myth. It's durable. It's mutable. It's applicable to all kinds of moments across millennia, uh, and it seems especially relevant right this moment. So uh, with that in mind, we're going to explore kind of the bones and flesh of the myth itself. Uh, we are going to talk to someone uh, doing something very creative with the ideas behind that myth and kind of incorporating uh, essentially AI, which is good. AI will come up again and again across all of this. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to critic A.O. Scott, uh, who's been writing a bit about Prometheus having a moment. And then towards the end of the show, yes, in 2012, well, released in 2013, there was a movie called Prometheus. It was a prequel to the Alien series. It was, I wouldn't say it was totally disparaged or dismissed, but it was not greeted or didn't kind of rise to the to the expectations of fans of that franchise. There's been a little bit uh, of a reassessment. We're going to talk about that. And certainly, you go back and look at that movie and just think about Prometheus and you think see a slightly different movie. Um, all right. So uh, let's begin with uh, someone who's joined us before. Adrian Mayer uh, is a research scholar in the Classics Department and the History of Science program at Stanford University. She is the author of Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology, among her other books. In just a few minutes also joining the conversation will be Andy Dorson, a theater director who works at the intersection of algorithmic art and live performance. Her most recent production was Prometheus Firebringer. She's the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship. Well, let's just call it a genius grant. What's the point of getting a MacArthur Fellowship if you're not a certifiable genius, you know, as a result of it? If I got one, I would only refer to it as a genius grant. Uh, anyway, in, in that very unlikely event. Uh, so, Adrian, uh, Adrian Mayer, get us going here. Uh, just uh, maybe a little refresher course for people. Uh, just give us, yes, the bones of the Prometheus story. And welcome back, by the way. Thank you. Um, the story of Prometheus, uh, it's the story of the creation of life on Earth, really. Um, Prometheus, uh, in one version of the myth, actually made the first humans, but the myth begins with uh, Prometheus and his younger brother Epimetheus, who are um, uh, setting the first prototypical animals and humans on Earth. And Epimetheus, the younger brother, is given the task of uh, sort of programming uh, all life on Earth with its capabilities and powers. And he get, gets very busy giving all these apps, I guess you could call them, to all <laughs> the animals, their keen hearing, you know, ex exquisite eyesight, claws, talons, big fangs, powerful jumps that can fly, all these things he's giving to the animals, uh, um, 
on land and sea and in the sky. And when Prometheus comes to check on his work, uh, it turns out that Epimetheus has forgotten to give anything to humans. Human beings are now just these weak, sort of vulnerable creatures. And Prometheus is appalled, of course, and he feels pity for them. So uh, he actually steals fire from the gods and teaches the first humans the secrets of fire, uh, which allows them then to uh, not only, you know, make tools, but they can gather around fires and uh, make, invent language. They plan cooperative projects. They can protect themselves and they increasingly manipulate the world around them because they have this technology of fire. Well, the gods are not happy, especially Zeus, uh, very uh, angry about the theft of fire. And so he punishes Prometheus by chaining him to a rock cliff in the Caucasus Mountains and sending an eagle to come every day to gnaw on Prometheus's liver, which grows back in the night, and the eagle comes back and is just perpetual punishment and torture for Prometheus for stealing fire for humans. Right, and so Prometheus is a titan, which is kind of a proto-god, the gods that were there before the gods that we know a little bit better. Uh, and so he can't be killed. Um, he Right, he's immortal. He can only be chained up and, and tortured that way. And correct right. me if I'm wrong, but I think in some versions of this, the eagle is not just a regular old eagle, but maybe kind of a robotic or semi-mechanical eagle made by Hephaestus. Yes, there's a, um, a description of him in uh, in the Argonautica, which is uh, some people think is an extremely old epic, maybe even older than Homer, where the uh, the eagle is said to have been created by Hephaestus, the god of invention and innovation, who made lots of automatons, and he supposedly made a mechanical uh, eagle that uh, that would carry out that punishment of Prometheus. And in the Argonautica, it's described in a very mechanistic fashion arriving exactly at the same time of each day like clockwork and its its wings uh, make a sort of whirring sound. Um, it's it's very mechanistic. Yeah. So, you know, there's so many tripwires here, I think, that we, <laughs> we kick again and again. But one of them right at the beginning is from the point of view of the gods, um, this is an artificial life form uh, that uh, Prometheus and Epimetheus, uh, they've been uh, and their their names, Prometheus means forethought, Epimetheus means afterthought, Epimetheus is kind of the careless <laughs> one. It had uh, a bit of a sense of humor about their about yeah, he, their he, Epimetheus <laughs> is not Mr. Measure Twice, Cut Once, you know, he just starts right. cutting. Um, so, but these are artificial life forms, right? And, and I think that's, you know, a, a place that this conversation could begin. You're very interested generally in the presence of things in, in Greek and, and other ancient mythologies that look an awful lot like robots and androids, automata, but from a certain point of view, humankind is artificial life and probably in the eyes of Zeus, artificial intelligence. Yes, and not just in the eyes of Zeus, but in the eyes of uh, of, of us humans ourselves. I mean, uh, if a lot of automata were made uh, in Greek mythology by Hephaestus, as I mentioned, with the eagle. He also made other automatons, including Pandora and various other uh, animated statues that look very lifelike and maybe even had uh, primitive or uh, prototypical AI. And when Prometheus is making uh, the first prototypical humans, he's making them with tools. Uh, so we have lots of images, especially on carved uh, gems that show Prometheus 
creating the first prototypical humans using an array of tools, starting with the framework, with the with the with the skeletons, and then adding bodily parts. And you know, it's a it's a very charming image, but it kind of implies that humans might be automata. Uh, are we um, are we just puppets of the gods? And I think uh, I think that's that that. Uh, question conundrum was around since antiquity. Plato was one of the first to consider that idea when he, he says in in the laws, let's just suppose that each of us living creatures is a kind of puppet of the gods. So um, are we automata cre uh, created by Prometheus? Yeah. And um, I mean, there's also, I think, in there, well, first of all, you mentioned Pandora. We should say that Prometheus in some of the versions of the Pandora story, it has a significant role. Once again, Epimetheus, maybe not Mr. <laughs> Think Things Through, uh, he, you know, seizes upon Pandora. He's kind of crazy about her. And Prometheus is going, you know, maybe just ghost her. Maybe just <laughs> put blocker on your phone or something. I, I, I don't really think that this is going to work out all that well. Um, but so all of these things kind of contain the idea that discovery can be really good and it can be really bad, right? There are consequences for for finding fire. There are or stealing fire from the gods. There are big con, con, uh, big consequences for Prometheus, but for humankind too. You know, finding Pandora, all this bad stuff flies out. Um, there's a lot of warning in in this myth, I think. Absolutely. I mean, um, Zeus uh, punished Prometheus in a very harsh way, but he also devised a punishment for for humankind. Uh, to punish them for accepting the gift of fire, um, Zeus is not a good god in this in these myths. He's uh, very tyrannical, and he's the one who commissions uh, Hephaestus to make a sort of fembot, a beautiful, uh, beautiful woman that's actually a trap for humans. Uh, and her only mission on earth is to open that jar filled with misery, eternal misery for humans. So that's the punishment that Zeus devises for, for humanity, for, for accepting the gift of fire. And of course, he sends it to the perfect patsy, uh, that's Epimetheus, who, who just goes for the short-term gains. And as you, as you say, his brother Prometheus says, she's wrong for you, bro. No, don't accept it. <laughs> and um, we know that Epimetheus uh, regretted his decision later, but uh, it's too late then. So um, the story is just perfect for... Uh, contemplating AI and robotics today, I think. I mean, we need more Promethean thinkers uh, instead of Epimetheans who go for the short-term gains and are dazzled by uh, what looks to be uh, beautiful and, and uh, marvelous. So, yeah, and when we think about Prometheus himself, I mean, he is in many respects kind of a revolutionary. He's suggesting that humans need something that the gods prior to this, those sole possessors of uh uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's like a huge Prometheus fanboy, uh, says Prometheus is the Jesus of the old mythology. He is the friend of man, stands between the unjust justice of the eternal father and the race of mortals and readily suffers all things on their account. You know, that's not a tortured analogy, I don't think. I mean, there's kind I of a, so. go, yes. go ahead. Yeah, I, react to that. I agree. Yeah. yeah. He he was seen as the benefactor of humankind. He took care for for uh, his creation, uh, the human beings that he created with technology, and then gave them the technology of fire. You could say that's the original technology. And over over time, by the classical period, by the fifth century BC, Athenians were venerating this rebel Prometheus and his precious gift of fire and technology uh, right alongside uh, with, uh, of Athena and uh, 
and Hephaestus, the gods of the city. So um, you're right. Prometheus is seen as a sort of rebel hero. So let's bring Annie Dorson into this. As I say, uh, Annie Dorson has um, developed a, um, a stage presentation uh, called uh, Prometheus Firebringer, uh, and it's uh, time to hear from her. Annie Dorson, welcome to our conversation. Hi, thanks for having me. So you didn't get interested in Prometheus uh, last summer. I mean, you've really been thinking about this guy for a while. What drew you to him? Well, um, partly because of a lot of the things that you guys have already been talking about, because Prometheus is um, such a central figure in thinking about the relationship of technology and power. Um, and then, of course, I got really interested when I realized that, you know, we have this play Prometheus Bound from the from Aeschylus, or at least scholars are you know, they debate sometimes who really wrote it, but let's call mm. it Aeschylus. Uh, and that that was originally a trilogy. So there's two plays that are lost that tell the end of the story. Prometheus Bound finishes with, you know, Prometheus sticking to his guns and refusing to give in to Zeus and holding on to his secrets uh, and this martyr figure uh, who seems to suffer for humanity's benefit. Right. Uh, but there's two yeah. more chapters, yeah. you know, to the story. Right. Yeah. Tantalizingly, um, this third uh, leg of the trilogy, isn't there just one line left, quiet, where need is, and talking to the point? That's like the, all you've got to work with to, for starters? That's all there is. Um, so I started thinking almost, you know, as a, as a joke, there's so many claims made about what machine intelligence and AI can do. I, I started going around telling people, well, I'm going to use machine learning to finish that play based on the one line, which, of course, is far beyond the capacity of probably any, you know, technological tool, but definitely far beyond the capacity of what we've got right now. Uh, but that became the catalyst for this project that was, you know, trying to think through what that third chapter might be, uh, and maybe how our own views of technology and power would be different if we'd always had that third piece of the puzzle. A lot of scholars think, that that third part of the story actually tells uh, that Prometheus eventually surrenders to Zeus and capitulates, uh, goes back to Mount Olympus and puts all of his foresight and ingenuity uh, in the hands of this tyrant god. So Which that is, changes things a little bit. Exactly. Uh, yeah, they, there, and, there are multiple endings to the Prometheus <laughs> yeah, story. We've that. Yeah, some happy, some sad. So, But what's fascinating to me is that, so you're using GPT-3, a precursor to chat GPT, to generate speculative versions uh, of this story that's missing. Um, in a way, you're using the Promethean fire that people worry about right now to talk about Prometheus. In other words, the, the thing you're using as a device to, to tell the story and maybe begin a conversation between you and your audience is in fact one of the things that makes people kind of nervous on a Prometheus slash Pandora level. So respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I that's uh, obviously very purposeful, and these tools are always ambivalent. You know, they we we're used to thinking they can always be used for both good and bad, and you know, how do we balance those things, and how do we try to mitigate the harms uh, and increase the benefits? Um, but there's Another question, which you know I've been interested in, and which I think a lot of people are thinking about in relation to generative AI, which is who controls these tools? Um, you know, maybe it's not simply that they, in the abstract, can be used for good or for ill, but it also depends on you know who owns them and who's deploying them for what purposes. Uh, if we think of Prometheus as somebody who's you know um, giving 
these powerful tools, you know, putting them in the hands of the little guy uh, and, you know, helping people sort of fight back against tyranny. Well, that's a framing that I think we're kind of used to hearing from the tech companies, for example, um, who talk a lot about democratizing, who talk a lot about, um, you know, getting rid of gatekeepers and empowering people to do more. There's some truth in that. Uh, but, you know, historically, a lot of new technologies have also tended to increase the power and wealth of elites. Uh, when, you know, big corporations own these tools, maybe they're not so great for the little guy in the long run. So Adrian Mayer, um, as she's talking, uh, I'm thinking about somebody else that you have included in, in your Prometheus narrative, and, and that is uh, Victor Frankenstein, or very specifically uh, Mary Wollstone, uh, Shelley's Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. That's the full title. So, I mean, long before there was chat GPT, there was uh, Dr. Frankenstein. I Say how you see that story as she told it fitting into the narrative that we're, we're, we're exploring today. Right. Mary Shelley was obviously uh, strongly influenced by uh, Promethean mythology. And uh, just to, to, uh, to talk uh, again about what you were saying about tyranny and technology, that, that fear has, has been around since antiquity too. Um, notice that uh, all of the automatons that are used in the heavens are sort of charming and beneficial, but once they interact with humans, once they are sent down to earth like Pandora, uh, uh, things aren't so good for the humans. So that story has been around for a long time. Mary Shelley was, um, I think, interested in the idea of uh, science overreaching itself. I mean, we've always had uh, as the stories of ancient automatons show from ancient Greece, that we always, humans are always seeking to sort of copy or emulate nature, improve on nature, and then maybe even surpass nature. We've just got that impulse. I mean, Sophocles talked about how um, there's no one more ambitious or glorious than humans and their inventions, but we should never forget that they can be used for good or ill. And uh, I think that's just what what you guys were just talking about. And Mary Shelley is focusing on um, uh, Frankenstein as the scientist who wants to create something really marvelous and beautiful. Um, unfortunately, uh, his creation turns out to be ugly and grotesque and also develops sentience and resents having been brought to life. And so the whole project backfires. And I think Mary Shelley is... Uh, what she really wants to draw attention to is uh, is this overreaching, a kind of um, arrogance or hubris of scientists who who want to actually create life on their own without foresight. So Annie Dorson, I feel as though Prometheus Firebringer, probably no two performances were any anything like the same. But in terms of a through line running through it all, was there a particular place you wanted the show to land or was was it more a set of questions and kind of a dialogue with the audience about all these issues? And I guess maybe if, if I'm saying that, what's, what's really the issue you want them thinking about as they walk out? Um, yeah. So, you know, the piece had two parts. One of the parts is all created by these commercial AI products, ChatGPT and the other stuff. Uh, and the other side of the piece is a lecture that I'm giving 
uh, about a lot of these questions that we're talking about right now. And, you know, my lecture sort of ends with a question, which I think is the one I would like to leave people with, uh, which is that when we think about ethics, there's a fundamental question. The fundamental question is, is this the world we want? And, you know, that's a big question, obviously. But I like to think that we have still some possibility of making some decisions about the kind of world we want to be creating and the role that we want technology to play in that. Um, sometimes it feels as though we're all a little bit, you know, <laughs> subject to these tools. They arrive uh quickly, uh, we have to get used to them, they're disorienting, uh, and we don't seem to have very much choice in it. Um, but I think we we do. We do have a choice about what kind of world we want to be creating. Yeah, and Adrian, Mayor, well, maybe just expo- uh, respond to that any way you want. I, I, have, I could sharpen that point, but I'd really rather almost hear what you think about what Annie's saying. Well, I think... I think um, if you go back to who you you both mentioned who owns who deploys and who benefits from ai and robotics and we we've we can see there's a link between uh tyranny and technology in that they're always always uh presenting their inventions as benign but we can all imagine how they might go wrong and so i think uh i think mary shelley was really interested in that um aristotle was interested in in that question he uh he said that automata should be considered to be property because otherwise who who will be responsible when when things go wrong and those kind of questions are are being asked by promethean thinkers about ai and robotics now so um i think that uh these questions are timeless and it's really exciting that People are working on it, in, both in the sciences and the humanities. All right. Um, I think we're going to stop there. The wonderful, wonderful guest. And it's a perfect segue into the next segment. We're talking to A.O. Scott, and we'll begin a little bit with uh, with Oppenheimer. Uh, same kind of story, right? We have a terrible enemy. We need something <clears throat> to do to, that we can use to defeat this terrible enemy. And maybe people not thinking that much further than that. Adrian Mayer, research scholar in the Classics Department and History of Science program at Stanford. Her book, Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology, has a lot of what we're talking about. Annie Dorson, theater director who works uh, in the intersection of algorithmic art and live performance. Her recent production was Prometheus Firebringer. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. 
I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready, so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, joining us now is A.O. Scott, a critic at large for the New York Times Book Review, where he was formerly film critic. He's been on the show quite a few times, but it's, it's been a while. Oh, we've missed him. He's the author of Better Living Through Criticism. Uh, recently, he's been writing uh, about some of these questions. Uh, in October, he wrote, Our Fears of AI and Nuclear Apocalypse Keeping You Up? Blame Prometheus, and relatedly, and more recently, Literature Under the Spell of AI. So... I don't know, Tony Scott, maybe just could we just begin with, I think you heard a lot of that conversation. Is there anything that you wanted to say before I lead you down some primrose path? Well, I was fascinated by it and I was I was really glad to hear sort of the the deep links um, that uh, that both the guests were were making between the ancient mythology, you know, some of the oldest um, Western myths that 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 we still have around and um, these very, very contemporary um, anxieties that we have um, about the effects of technology, about who controls technology. Um, I mean, I, I think especially about AI, sort of sometimes from the opposite direction also. I mean, I've seen, there have been so many movies back when I was a movie critic and I would see almost all of them, um, where the question is, you know, at what point or in what way do these robots, do these creations, do these... Um, AI applications become human? When do they cross that boundary? Do they become sentient? Do they become self-reflexive? Do they feel pain? Do they fall in love? Um, and and therefore, what is our ethical obligation to them? That's also the question raised by Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. And I always think that those stories are stories where we're trying to puzzle out what it is that makes us human by kind of imagining these these non-human or proto-human or almost human or becoming human creations, we're sort of shining a light back on ourselves and wondering what what it is that defines us as um, the particular kind of creature that we are. Right. And, and, and also, I mean, sitting within that question is also the question of what does any individual imagining uh, of artificial intelligence think of us? Uh, and it can range from, I mean, probably the one people are the most familiar with is Data from the Star Trek franchises, who's for him, humanity is kind of aspirational. He would like to be more human. He would like, I mean, can I laugh, really, really laugh at a joke? Those are uh, one of his questions. A little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking about Prometheus the movie, in which David, played by Michael Fassbender, basically thinks people suck. Um, and, and, I mean, that's an interesting question, too. You don't always like who made you. Uh, and right. you also might not particularly admire the behavior that you're supposed to be emulating as you're you're supposedly replicating human intelligence. But yeah, I'd love to hear your take. It, well, exactly, and and I mean, I think I think there are there are there are sort of both. Um, it it goes both ways. At, sometimes um, you have the 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 AI or the robot. Um, 
you know, aspiring to be human, becoming human. You think of Steven Spielberg's film, um, AI, you know, where it's the sort of the little boy who, who becomes something like human when, um, because of his attachment to his human adoptive mother. But a lot of the time, I mean, we, we also project, um, great fear and anxiety that these robots will, will take our intelligence and improve upon it to such an extent as to make us obsolete. And so sometimes that is is played kind of for slightly comic or ironic effect as in um the Spike Jones movie Her where the the app played by voiced by Scarlett Johansson, you know, she's sort of the 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 Joaquin Phoenix character, you know, purchases her so she'll fall in love with him and be his girlfriend and she basically just gets bored with him at a certain time at a certain point because her her intelligence works so rapidly that she just kind of goes off and hangs out with a bunch of other ais and 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 leaves the human being behind um and then of course there are the examples of hal in 2001 hal 9000 the computer that that shuts down humanity because humanity is has sort of um outlived its 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 usefulness in whatever the cosmic scheme that 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 movie is imagining or um the terminator well, movies where the the skynet program has basically decided that um human beings will now be uh subservient um and and you know hunted and enslaved and exploited by the robots so we kind of we toggle it back and forth these these poor robots that 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 we may need to care for that may love us that we may love that we you know maybe shouldn't um exploit or 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 or, or mistreat or take advantage of and then the kind of the 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 inverse anxiety that um they're going to be so powerful that they're just going to um, subjugate or even exterminate us. So it's just kind of wired into us that uh, when we're looking at modern and future questions, we tend to look at history. Um, like what happened before? How did we handle it? Uh, so yeah. it's probably no accident that Oppenheimer was such a big part of the conversation uh, last year and, and heading into this year. And, you know, they're not I mean, obviously it comes from from a, a book about Oppenheimer whose subtitle is American Prometheus. But even. Nolan's movie itself, it begins with a quote on the screen. It says, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. For this, he was chained to a rock and tortured for eternity. And, I mean, you don't really have to be an expert in semiotics to figure out how that applies here. But but it is that interesting moment of... Uh, of a Rubicon that you're about to cross technologically and you think you need to cross it because you have terrible enemies and you have to vanquish them and then some of the enemies <clears throat> become a little bit less effective and it's the, you know, the urgency changes a little bit. We see that in the movie and, right. and we also see Oppenheimer himself drifting into to grave misgivings. But yeah, give me your take there. Yeah, well, it's it's an it's an interesting movie in that way because there is certainly that political dimension where you know for for the for the U.S. military and the political leadership the 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 race to to create a weapon um, before Germany or Japan um, do and 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 to use it even as the war is 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 maybe drawing toward a close to use it to show that that you know the united states has it and has this power is is one of the 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 forces that's that's driving it forward but what what's fascinating to me is that for the scientists it's a slightly different ambition because what the successful development of the atomic bomb will mean to them is 
an empirical proof of their theory. So you have the theory of, of the quantum universe, which has been just revolutionizing physics um, in the earlier decades of the 20th century, and which has been entirely a kind of a blackboard theoretical, you know, it's all of these equations. This is one of these movies where there's a lot of writing on blackboards, <laughs> a lot of very, very furious, very, you know, people smoking cigarettes, writing on blackboards. That's how, you know, real science is, is happening. Um, but, it's almost like the bomb is a kind of proof of concept for for people like Oppenheimer and Edward Teller and 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 Richard Feynman and all of the people working on the Manhattan Project from the scientific side, from the theoretical side. They want to see when 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 they're looking at the Trinity test in 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 the New Mexico desert, they're not even thinking so much about well, this is going to help us defeat Japan, but if this works, this will prove. Um, the theory of the quantum universe, which which is an entirely radical um, and and revolutionary understanding of the structure of matter and and the universe, and it's it's almost what happens then when you know when the bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and 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 Nagasaki is almost like this kind of terrible side effect. Oh my gosh, wait, we did this too, because <laughs> um, there's this great sort of awe and jubilation when the tests succeed, and then there's um a kind of horror and panic and um uh a, a profound kind of sense of 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 guilt and uncertainty and ambivalence and and regret on Oppenheimer's part in the aftermath and, and you know just i mean not to beat our theme to death but that's very true to kind of the promethean trope you know that this is great short term maybe it's not so great long term maybe there are consequences that were undreamt of um this is a story we tell ourselves over and over again but you know if if Christopher Nolan ever wanted to do anything so unlikely and predictable as do another movie of this type, um, von Neumann would be a really interesting <laughs> movie because, uh, first of all, he's kind of a coaxial cable stretching from Oppenheimer, yeah. maybe even to the present in AI. I know yeah. what you talked a little bit uh, in one of your pieces about a, a novel about von Neumann, but just to, to help people, he's he probably builds the first real computer that we could identify uh, in the context of our other computers. Uh, it's yeah. called Maniac, Mathematical yeah. and Numerical uh, Integrator and Computer. And, and von Neumann, if he were to say, I, have, I am become death destroyer of, world, of worlds, he'd go, and that's great. Uh, right. I mean, he's very different from Oppenheimer. But yeah, give me a little bit of, of your take there. Yeah, well, I was fascinated, I, and I wrote this piece partly because this this um, this book, which is a really uh, wonderful book that I, I I think should should have more readers and get more attention by um, the Chilean novelist Benjamin Labatut, um, called The Maniac, and the fact that it and Oppenheimer were coming out at the same time just struck me as such a kind of one of those great coincidences that you just have to go to an editor and say I want to write a piece about this without necessarily knowing what the piece is going to be, but. Um, but von Neumann was, I mean, he's a fascinating parallel um, figure to Oppenheimer. They're born around the same time. They they grew up in in um, affluent, assimilated Jewish families. Oppenheimer in New York, um, uh, von Neumann in 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 Budapest. Um, he came to the United States during the war. But if if um, Oppenheimer is kind of a haunted and tormented figure um, in that in that film, um, and just sort of almost undone by the 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 enormity of what he has unleashed um von neumann has no such qualms he's he's just you know um a kind of he he's first of all just 
an, an almost pathologically productive and brilliant scientist. He invented he invented AI. He invented the computer. He invented game theory. He was also on the Man, on Manhattan Project. He was you know was he a mathematician? Was he a physicist? What 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 you know he he just was a kind of a, a 20th century polymath. Um, he was at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which Oppenheimer was the director of after the war, um, and that is where. Uh, a lot of the 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 work on the early computers um, was was done, and and his belief. I mean, you're talking about unintended consequences and the sort of the long term logic of technological development. And he had no problem with it. He just he sort of said, you you know you 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 throw the dice and 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 that's how it goes. You you invent these things and and the, and the computer will do what it does. The technology will follow the logic um, that is in, internal to it, and um, there's nothing we can do about it. And so we might as well welcome it. So his his idea, you know, the sort of the the ideas that we have now of. Um, uh, you know, of AI taking over or, or or causing our extinction or all of the sort of the more kind of dystopian and alarming projections that are sometimes out there. He would say, well, if that's how it's going to go, that's how it's going to go. And, you know, that's just how it is. Right. Ac actually, von Neumann also, I mean, he really does initially come up with a kind of real Ridley Scott sounding idea of universal assemblers, a species of self-replicating robots. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, think about that. That's he, yes. he's, he's got that idea of 48, 49. That's when he's thinking yes, about all this yes. stuff. Yes, no, he, I mean, he's, he is, he is, he is way out front. I mean, when you think that what computers were in those, just mechanically what they were was like, a you know, punch cards and and just all of these sort of wires and plugs and the idea that 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 you could imagine that you could theorize that um application on that uh you know sort of mechanical platform is um astonishing and he also said there's a quote that's 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 that's, that's in the book he said well if you you know you tell me what a what a machine can't do and i will make the machine that does it <laughs> Yeah, and I think well, we're going to have to end there. But I think the other part of this is, you know, I mean, until the real last chapter of the human race gets written, it's hard to know what the last chapter is. These things go through iterations, things that look good turn bad, things that turn bad sometimes can turn better. We may be saved ultimately by nuclear power. You know, we don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, and and, and I think, too, that 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 some that history also has its twists and turns, you know, that that the the fears of nuclear extinction that certainly you know, defined my childhood and adolescence in the, in the, in the Cold War are not, have been replaced by other ones. Right. So, I don't know if that's comforting or not. But. Yeah. A little of each. But Tony Scott, thanks so much for your time today. Great to have your voice back on our show. Great talking with you, Colin. Thank right. you. Why don't we take a little break here and we'll come back and we'll do a reassessment of a movie that Tony probably did review at some point. At some point being 2013, we're going to talk about the movie Prometheus. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org slash unforgotten. 
Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And thanks, Sabrina. And thanks to uh, Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Our senior producer is Lily Lily Tyson. She produced this episode specifically. Um, yes, and uh, we're going to spend uh, the last bit of the show talking about a movie that I think has suffered a certain num- number of slings and arrows and is now enjoying, if movies can enjoy things, um, a reconsideration. One of the people doing that reconsideration is our guest, Dom Nero, uh, writer, video editor, and co-host of Eye of the Duck, a podcast about movies and scenes that make them special. Um you know, maybe, Don, before we get uh, into what I want to ask you about, I think you've been listening to a lot of the conversation so far. So given what you've heard, are you able to plug your thoughts about the movie? We should say the movie Prometheus is a prequel to Alien. It was directed by Ridley Scott, the creator of, of Alien. Um, it, it anticipates – well, I, I, we won't even say anything more about that. I'll just let you react. How, how do you see everything we've been talking about manifesting in this movie? <laughs> Well, thanks so much for having me, Colin. Sure. Uh, I'm so excited that I get to be the person to uh, spread the joy and and love of Prometheus. (laughs) I think it's a deceptively deep movie. It's a powerful movie. It's a pretty heavy movie. And after listening to this conversation, which has been great, uh, I feel illuminated a bit on what is going on in terms of like the mythological underpinnings of this film. You know, when I went into this uh, in high school and I saw it, I think uh, what I saw was a movie where the ship is called Prometheus. <laughs> and now, after listening to everything I just heard, I, I, I see there is there's so much uh, depth to to what Scott is exploring with this myth. I think it's something that has become kind of important to him in this late stage of his career. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so too. And we should say, I like, I mean, I did the same thing. I, I watched the movie again, thinking about all these kinds of questions. And it does seem as though one of the themes that jumps pretty easily from Plato to Ridley Scott uh, is that idea of who made us. Um, so, you know, in Greek mythology, either Prometheus made us, he sculpted us out of clay, or Prometheus beholding this kind of semi-useless naked ape thought, oh boy, they're going to need something. You know, they're going to get eaten on the first day. So let's give them fire. Let's give them knowledge of fire. That'll give them a running start. Um, You know, in this movie, you have a group of scientists and explorers in the future. Uh, It's like 2095 or something. Uh, I can't remember, but it's something like that. They are looking for, they believe they know where there might be a race of beings who made us. So they're looking for their makers. But they're also accompanied by a kind of snide and and occasionally resentful uh, creature, uh, an artificial intelligence named David, played by Michael Fassbender, who's also been made. Uh, It isn't really crazy about how all of that's playing out. I don't know. what What are you hearing or thinking about as I say that? You know, what I think Scott is most interested in in this film is sort of the audacity of humans and the, you know, the audaciousness of of this scientist who is going to this other planet to find the origins of human life. Now, 
that I think is okay. But when they wake up this, uh, this creature, this engineer that they call them in the film, uh, who may or may not have created humanity, I think what the engineer sees in us is something that uh, he doesn't like all that much. I think that <laughs> these audacious humans are sort of assuming that when we meet our creators, the creators will, you know, leap for joy. Oh my God, we made you. Look at how far you've come. And in the film, and, and I think this might have been uh, something that people really bristled against when it first came out. Uh, in the film, when the engineer takes one look at us, and seeing the greed and corruption, and, and I mean, especially of uh, of Peter Wayland, who uh, it's revealed that what he's really searching for, not so much the origins of human life, but the uh, but eternal life. He's he simply wants eternal life. When our creators find that, they're not so pleased, and that creates for a really powerful and, and compelling statement for a film that. Uh, I think to most of us was just going to sort of bring back this very confined, uh, concise horror series, the, the alien series, which is known for these little, I mean, not only is it known, but it, it kind of started this, this, uh, tradition of these small contained, uh, creature features. Then Ridley Scott comes back and he says something like, you know, <laughs> Maybe humanity does not deserve the uh, advantages and the technology that we have. That's a pretty devastating thing to say. <laughs> right. So let's actually hear a little bit of, this is kind of the eye of the duck moment from the film. Uh, the, you're going to hear uh, Wayland, who's the um, who, who's this, <clears throat> well, he's the business owner and he's the person who's funding this expedition for all the reasons that you just said. And you'll also hear uh, the science, uh, scientist, Dr. Shaw. Uh, they are kind of waking up uh, with the assistance of, of, of David, uh, the, the artificial intelligence. They're kind of waking up the head of this uh, engineer, this creator of us. This is C1 Cat. Speak to him, David. Tell him we came, just like he asked. Ask him where they're from. What are you doing? Ask him what's in his cargo. It killed his people. Sure. Enough. David. You made it here. And, and it was meant for us. Why? Sure. Enough. For God's sake, shut her up. Was it? <laughs> I need to know why. What did we do wrong? Why do you hate us? Because you always are not the dead suitor. David, continue. Tell him why I came. You know. Manamai. Yanamurtu steda. Uiva. On itam sustater creda. So there's your eye of the duck moment. Although, Dom, I would say that my eye of the duck moment, or it, there's sort of a companion eye of the duck moment for me, and it's a very quick conversation uh, between David, um, the the android or whatever we want to call him, uh, and and uh, Charlie, who's I think the most arrogant and aspirational of the scientists uh, leading this quest. And and I don't have the clip here, but I mean, uh, uh, there's that. Uh, Charlie says that he wants to know from these makers, from these engineers, why they made us. Uh, and David said, well, you know, I mean, what about why I was made? Uh, and Charlie says, we made you because we could do it. And, and <laughs> then David says, can you imagine how disappointing it would be to have 
the people who made you say that. Um, the implication being it's very disappointing to David. Um, and, and that's, you know, I mean, we are, in fact, kind of reviled on either side. We're reviled by our makers and we are reviled by what we have made. Nobody particularly likes humans in this movie. <laughs> it reminds me of the quote, uh, the Jeff, the famous Jeff Goldblum quote from Jurassic Park. You know, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Right. So we should say the Alien franchise goes on and on. Noah Hawley is going to adapt it for television. He's not going to use any of this Prometheus <laughs> from, from what we can tell. But, you know, in the minutes that we have left, and we don't have many, but yeah. I don't know, make the case. Make the case that somebody else should. It's on Netflix for a sh- short period of time. I, I think it's going to go off in a few weeks. But uh, let's imagine somebody has a little bit of free time and either didn't see the movie because the reviews weren't all that great at the beginning or word of mouth wasn't terrific or because or, or they started it and didn't finish it or whatever. <laughs> make the case to go back and, 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 and see what's there. What's worth seeing? Well, I mean, so if you're a fan of the Alien series, which I am a, a huge fan of, uh, we did a we did a mini series on it on our podcast, and I think it's one of the rare franchises that is as much an intellectual movement as it is just a series of like really fun, you know, action populist movies. Uh, if, if you're a fan of that, I mean, there's no question that you need to check out Prometheus. You know, Scott comes back to the series so many years later, and we're all expecting him to kind of just bring back the xenomorph. You know, we want to hang out with the xenomorph again. What a great monster. What a great, uh, you know, horror, <laughs> a horror icon. But what he, he really gets us here is, you know, he he redefines the franchise and, and, and this is a franchise that more or less has, you know, created a genre onto itself. I mean, what Ridley Scott has done for science fiction between Blade Runner, between Alien, uh, it, it, it changed the game. So Scott doesn't just come back with a new take on the Xenomorph. He comes back with this really meaningful and like ponderous film that is, is uh, it has a message that is kind of like, scary to contend with i mean i think at this stage of his career he is really into like casting judgment on like the sins of men i mean scott has been around for so many years as a filmmaker i think uh, of all the filmmakers who was allowed to do that i think we can give him a pass and uh, you know people didn't like it i think a lot because the the people the humans in the film are stupid. <laughs> that is true. You know, we're going to have to stop there, Dom Nero, but if people want to know more, Dom is the co-host of Eye of the Duck, a podcast about movies and scenes that make them special, including this movie. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Thanks for listening, uh, those of you who did, and we will be back tomorrow with another show. <laughs>